Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount and how we can apply it to our lives. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to tell you about a really cool resource that we're giving away with this series. We understand that spiritual growth can be really hard, and I personally get that even when you leave having heard one of my sermons with the best intentions to apply it to your life, turning those best intentions into real-life actions can be pretty difficult. And so with this series, we're giving away devotional sheets. These devotional sheets contain daily activities that will take about 10 minutes for you to complete. The activities are varied from day to day. One day has a devotional writing written by me, another has questions, another has guided prayer, and there's a few other things too. I really do think that these devotional sheets will help you to immerse yourself more fully in the passages of scripture that I'm preaching on in this series, and I hope that you will get a copy. You can get a copy by visiting one of our services, or for you online listeners, you can get one by going to wilsonville.church slash SOTM. That's wilsonville.church slash SOTM. The SOTM stands for Sermon on the Mount. Hey, again, thanks for listening. I really do hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, today we're going to talk about lust. And so thank you for being here. I appreciate that. Um, just get it out there. Uh, I, I think that this is a subject that we have shied away from. It's not going to be uncomfortable or weird, I promise. Um, I'm not going to use the whole time to talk about pornography. In fact, that's the last time I'll say it right there. We got it out of the way. Uh, I, uh, I think that it's an uncomfortable subject, but it's one that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, this book that we are or this sermon that we're looking at, Jesus' longest recorded sermon in Scripture, uh, the most influential, at least through history. He takes this time to talk about this thing called lust, and he makes a really big deal about it. And, and what I see, and if you're a part of our church, you've been around, you know this about me, that it seems like we've ignored it as kind of the American church because it's a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little strange, you know, it's like, politics, religion, and lust, you know, you could put them all together, nobody brings it up at family dinner, you know, or else people are going to be weirded out, and, and, and yet you look at how we've ignored it, and you compare it to, to some of the data, and the way that our culture has embraced it, and you have to wonder, like, should we have dealt with it more, right? I mean, should we have brought this subject up somewhere along the way? Because it seems like we now live in a culture that is embracing lust like never before. I was reading in uh, a book that I have been using in this series called The Message of the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, it's a 20, 25-year-old book. And it said, at no time in our nation's history has this been a bigger problem. This is written before the internet. I thought, wow, this guy had no idea where this was going to go. Uh, and so today I think it's really important. If Jesus made a big deal out of it, then if you've been around, you know that I'll make a big deal out of it, whether it's uncomfortable for all of us or not. But this is the thing. We've been talking about in this series how Jesus moves our righteousness inside out. And I think what we'll see in this passage, it's a little bit difficult on first glance, but what we see in this passage is that while lust is the primary topic, the thing that changes 
in our hearts or that needs to change in order to remove lust from our lives is something that is applicable to every one of us, even if we don't have a lust problem. It's something that's applicable to all of us, no matter what stage or area or uh, you know, part of life we're in, because, because it speaks to the value of, of humanity. It's a really important thing, right? I mean, Leanne just talked about that. Somebody uh, with the question, does God think about you? Like, do you matter at all to God? And I think in this passage, as Jesus addresses lust, we see that, that we matter to God, that he does think about us. And we'll see how that connects to lust in, in a few moments. But I want you just, as I come into this passage, to... Uh, Together, let's just, let's just admit that our culture has embraced lust as, as really almost a good thing, right? And we live in this time where, where almost everything that you watch on television comes back to the topic of sexuality in some way, right? Whether that's transgenderism or homosexuality or just simply uh, adultery, which is pr- more close to what Jesus will talk about here. Uh, it seems like our entire culture, I mean, maybe you don't feel this way, but I feel this way. It seems like our entire culture is driven by, by the topic of sexuality and lust kind of sits at the very center of that. Uh, no matter who you're lusting for, what gender you're lusting for, or whatever it might be, lust is at the very center of it all. And so as we approach Jesus' words, what I would hate is for us, I just would hate this, like to say, well, that's an uncomfortable topic. I wish we wouldn't have gone to that church today, you know, and and to ignore the principles because, I mean, like that guy said in the Sermon on the Mount book I just mentioned, I mean, we live in a time where this is more applicable and perhaps more important than than any time in our nation's history. And so here's, here's what Jesus starts with. In Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. We know what adultery is, marital unfaithfulness and affair. It was commanded against in the Ten Commandments. It was the Seventh Commandment. You're not supposed to cheat on your spouse. That's the, what is prohibited in the sermon on the mount. It was punishable by death for both men and women. We'll see that that wasn't really applied to men nearly as much as it, w- as it was women later in this sermon. Uh, but this is all part of the antithesis section. I mentioned that last week. And in Matthew 5, Jesus you know, lays some groundwork in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he launches into these antithesis statements, which are, is to say, you've heard it said, but let me give you a new and better way of understanding this very ancient teaching. And here he looks at this prohibition against adultery and says, you've heard it said, but now I'm going to tell you a new and better understanding of what God had commanded, what God has commanded thousands of years ago. And here's what was happening in the culture that Jesus is talking to. And, and it's not dissimilar to what we experience in our culture today. So the seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. But in the tenth commandment, and you may know this if you've ever read the Ten Commandments, God says not to covet another man's wife. And as humans will do, they paid attention to the very 
clear, big one that was far easier to not give in to, right? It's much easier to not have an affair than it is to not look at your neighbor's wife and go, wow, dang, she's hot. You know, I mean, that's, that's much easier. One is a, a bigger step. One's a smaller step. One is easier to avoid than the other one. And so these people, they were looking, they, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees primarily, and as they were teaching this command, the seventh commandment, they're like, look, just don't give in to the affair. Don't take the big step. And they were forgetting, not teaching was wrong, but forgetting about the smaller step of avoiding coveting or wanting, desiring your neighbor's wife. Now, we've seen this. If, if it's your first time here in this series, then, then you don't know this. But what we've seen, and I've alluded to, is that Jesus is giving these antithesis statements, but the danger, even today, is for us to look at them and say, well, there's a new set of rules to follow. But what Jesus is, in fact, teaching against is this idea that we can have a righteousness or a right relationship with God by following a set of rules. That's what Jesus is trying to push back against. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they did, like, I'm going to put this in quotes, everything right they were really, really trying to follow all of the rules. And Jesus is like, that, that's never going to get the job done. Instead, you have to change, you have to change your hearts. And so Jesus gives us this teaching on lust, and it must be seen within the context of a changed heart, not just another rule to be followed. Here's what he says in the next verse. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, a few things that are important. Um, Jesus is not saying this. I think this is clear, but I'm sure if it's been used this way in the past. Jesus is not saying, like, if you've ever lusted, then just go ahead and have an affair. Because, you, hey, you've already committed a sin, so, you know, it's opened up the doors, do whatever you want. I guarantee some man has used it that way in the past. I, I, I mean, so don't. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. The other thing that's really important is that Lust is the first step in adultery. We saw this with anger last week. Last week we saw Jesus teaching about the dangers of anger. And, and I said, man, it seems like Jesus is, is really kind of overstating things. Like it feels like exaggeration. But when you look through scripture, you see that anger is bad in large part because it's the first step towards murder. And here what Jesus is cautioning against and I don't want to spend as much time on this, is that lust is the first step in other sexual sins, including, but not limited to, adultery. When we allow for ourselves to embrace lust, then we are taking steps to doing other things that the Bible, that God through the Bible says are wrong to do. Uh, this isn't original to me, but uh, here in the Portland metro area, we have more strip clubs per capita than anywhere else in the United States. And a lot of people have connected that, not me. Uh, this is not original to me. I'm not just making this up. But a lot of people have connected that to the fact that we have one of the highest rates of, of human trafficking in the United States, too, coming out of the Portland metro area. And, and what sociologists see is that, that this first step in 
and looking at women lustfully leads to more steps that end up with us trading, not just women, but, but humans, trading them for our own benefit and pleasure. And, and so while it might seem like, wow, that's an exaggeration for Jesus to, you know, it all connect this thing called lust where you're, you're envisioning, you know, the opposite gender or whatever in a sexual way to, to something as, as big and as destructive as adultery, having an affair. It seems like we, we live in a part of the country where, where those steps are really easy to connect. Now, another thing that's, that's important that's at play here is, is that Jesus changes the conversation from putting the, the responsibility of lust on the one that is lusting versus the one that is being lusted after. In Roman culture uh, and in Jewish culture, frankly, almost all of the responsibility for a man's desire for a woman was placed on a woman. And, and so this played out in, in several ways. Like there were teachers who said that women should be avoided altogether. There were teachers who said that women should be secluded from men altogether. And then, and you see this in our modern times in certain Eastern cultures, there, there was another teaching that women should be covered fully in order that men would not lust. And what Jesus does in this passage, and this isn't just aimed at men. Women have become more visual in our culture, sociologists tell us. But what it does is it changes the conversation from saying, look, when a woman or a man is lusted after, it's their fault, to saying, when a woman or man is lusted after, it's the luster's fault. I don't know if that's a word, but you got the idea. It's the, ones who, the one who is lusting. It is, it is, the responsibility is on them. Now look, this is not opening the door for you to run around shirtless after church or anything like that and say, it's your fault, you know. Uh, that is not what, uh, what Jesus is getting at here. There's plenty in the Bible about dressing modestly. But what we need to pay very close attention to here is that the responsibility of lust falls on me if I am the one that is lusting. And we'll see how Jesus says that should live out later. But, but a, a couple of things I think are important uh, by way of illustration. In John 7, you may know this story. There's this story uh, that's famous because of how it ends. But there's this woman caught in adultery. And, and these religious leaders are looking at Jesus and they're like, hey, you know, should we stone her to death? And Jesus then says, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's the most famous part of the story. But you notice there's no man there, right? The, the, the woman is the one caught. And, and so Jesus in a lot of ways, and this is, I, just, I, I think this is important to bring up because, because the Bible and Jesus and the Apostle Paul get a really bad rap for being anti-woman or against women. And I say this a lot in my sermons, but both Jesus and Paul moved women forward in culture more than any other people that have ever lived. And we see that here as Jesus says, look, lust and sexual sin, it's not just a thing. It's not. It's not the fault of the one who is lusted after. It's the fault of the person lusting. And a lot of times that's men. But there's this other illustration that I think is, is really worth pointing out, and that is um, 
there's this, this, you know this, this Me Too movement, right? And I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of that. But it seems like one of the great responses of people in evangelical, right-winged Christianity has been to say, those women probably deserved it. They probably were dressed immodestly. Literally people saying that. This is not hypothetical. I was having a conversation this week where somebody was talking about the Me Too movement and they said that somebody in their church was talking about it and then said, well, how am I supposed to help lust? Because look how women dress nowadays. I wish they were at this service this morning. (laughs) Because this is still our thinking. It's culture's fault. It's the internet's fault. It's that girl's fault. If they would just cover up and censor and put better things on television, then I, I could remove this lust from my life. But Jesus says, look, if you have a lust problem, then you need to deal with the lust problem. You need to deal with the lust problem. In, in another book on the Sermon on the Mount, Seeking the Kingdom, it's called The author says, the problem resides in the one who looks, not the one who is looked at. The solution is not to sequester women, but to cleanse the heart of the looker. It queries rigorous discipline so that the look does not turn into a leer. It's kind of humbling, right? Not just about lust, just in in general, because we blame a lot of our, our sinfulness uh, the, the regrets that we have, if you're not like a Christian person, you don't use the word sin, like the things that you do and you know they're wrong, we blame a lot of those on, on the other person, right? I mean, anger, which we talked about last week here, I mean, anger is one, right? If they would just, you know, be nicer, be cooler, not be so annoying or whatever, then I would, I would not get so angry and I wouldn't say all those stupid things. And Jesus does this the same thing with lust when you lust don't look outward and say i can't believe they look inward and say what is wrong with my heart what's wrong with my heart Um, but here's this is the, the most important part of this verse and that is that the language can be taken to more literally translate uh, in this way adultery is her and lusts her i think that what's at the heart of this is is that lust objectifies the one who is being lusted after and the reason we know this not from this passage of scripture but but we know this through the whole of scripture the the reason that objectifying someone is so bad is because it is so contrary to what we see in the story of God's love for humanity. I think that if I see a theme arising in in my preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, it's simply this. We ought to avoid certain sins because the people we commit those sins against are valuable. And they're valuable because of the way God has created them. Maybe you don't know this, but the beginning of the Bible tells the story of how God created us. 
And in that story, one of the key lines is that God created us in his image and his likeness. And then he looks at his creation and says, wow, that's good. From the moment you were conceived, you had a value and a worth that was not based on how you would live your life, how talented you were, how skilled you were, how much people would respect you, how much maybe they wouldn't respect you, how successful you were going to be. It was all based on you being created in the image and the likeness of God. And with that comes some really cool things that you may not even recognize. You have, you've been uniquely skilled and equipped and gifted for a purpose, a purpose to glorify God. And your glorification of God is entirely different than any other person's on earth. That's super cool. But we've, we've taken that away in our society. And we've said, like, eh, humanity is just this thing that kind of grew up out of an evolutionary process, disconnected from any thought of creation. It was by chance. And, and so what does that make people? Kind of worthless, right? I mean, we don't say it like that in most circles. Like, wow, can you believe that chance got us here and that makes you worth nothing and me worth nothing? And uh, what a disappointing viewpoint. But, but I see it in this way. The more our culture rejects the notion of God, the more people commit suicide. I just read a story this week, and this is the second time I've almost read an identical story to this. A man just was sentenced, 19 years old. He was sentenced to go to prison because he had helped a girl that he knew commit suicide and filmed the whole thing for her. There's just a devaluing of life there, right? Like, you just don't matter. Just don't matter. The other story that I, I saw months ago was this, was this person who helped this girl, who helped her kind of boyfriend, kind of boyfriend, commit su- he hel- she helped him commit suicide. And she did it because, because he was sad and depressed and was looking for a way out and wanted to do it anyway. That's just a devaluing of life, right? Because as Christians, what we believe is vastly different than that. We look at that person, we say, it doesn't matter how sad you feel, it doesn't matter how down you feel, it doesn't matter how lonely you feel. We believe that God created you and his image and his likeness. And so therefore, you have value and worth. And he has created you with a purpose, and that is for his glory. And not only that, I haven't got to this part of the story yet, but he proved your incredible value and worth by stepping out of heaven and coming to live on earth so that he might die for your sins. Because he valued a relationship with you so much. And so therefore, no matter how insignificant or low you feel, Suicide is never the option because God has you here for a reason and he values you and so we will value you too. And our culture has just minimized that and then said how do we, how do we, I don't know, reinstill value into people and slow down suicide rates and, and show people that shooting up their classmates is not a good idea. 
frankly, the answer lies in, in Christianity and what it teaches us about the value of humanity and how God created us and then, and then showed us our value and, and proved, us, proved to us our value by, by dying for us. And so when Jesus says here, I think we need all that as our backdrop. When he says, when you, when you lust, you, you adultery her or you lust her. It's really about objectifying a creation that God has said, this is not an object to be used for your pleasure. This is a being that I have created in my image and likeness and, and instilled incredible value in. You see, I think that what's at the heart of what Jesus says here is that lust is bad because lust looks at people in a way that the gospel, the story of God's love for humanity does not allow for. It doesn't allow for it. The gospel calls for us to look at people in one of two ways. We can look at people as our siblings in Christ or we can look at people as sinners in need of a savior. But it allows for no room to look at people as objects of our imagination or lust. The Sermon on the Mount is great because it it doesn't say, hey, stop lusting. Because we're never gonna do that. Every male that's been a teenager knows that that's not gonna work. We stop lusting because we understand the incredible value of the people that we are lusting after, even if they're not dressed in a way that we find appropriate. And only within this context, I think this backdrop of the the value of all human beings, do the next two verses make sense where Jesus makes such an incredibly big deal about this that again, it's like, is this real? I mean, come on, are you making, are you going too far here, Jesus? Is lust really that big a deal? And here's what he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let me just state right up front as clear as I can. This is hyperbole. Jesus is exaggerating for effect. He is not saying that you should cut off any body part or gouge your eye out and... uh, origin of Alexandria actually um, castrated himself because of this passage of scripture. Thankfully in 325 AD at a council called the Council of Nicaea, which was kind of helpful in forming Christianity, they said, this is not okay. You should not castrate yourself. And so uh, I'm glad we have the history of the church's teaching on that. Uh, We can all go home feeling feeling good. Um, and, and I think that we can, I mean, it just doesn't feel literal, right? But also we can, we can see uh, kind of a couple of details that, that help us uh, understand that it's not literal, like one hand and one eye allow us to sin just as much. I'm pretty sure that any person blind in one eye or missing an arm, you know, still can sin just as much as me. Uh, and uh, I, I'm it's pretty, I mean, no, no disciple ever went this far right, and, and they were a bunch of burly fishermen, and so I'm pretty sure that at some point they lusted, uh, and, um, and they didn't go, well, I guess I'm going to 
poke my eyes out, you know? And the third thing is, I think if Jesus was being literal, then he would have used a different body part. Um, and I, I'm pretty certain of that. <laughs> and so Jesus is not being literal here. He is being figurative. But here's the fear when we study scripture. I, this happens all the time. We see hyperbole, and we then say the opposite of what the person, the writer, Jesus, is trying to get at. We say, oh, that's hyperbole. He exaggerated, and then we just ignore it altogether. Like, oh, well, I guess I don't have to follow that teaching. That's, you know, that's exaggeration for effect. But when we see, just in general, hyperbole in the Bible, our response shouldn't be, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'll just ignore it. Our response should be, wow, this is serious. What's the underlying teaching that I really need to pay attention to? You you with me? You see the difference there? Hyperbole is not there so you go, oh, that's, wow, he exaggerated. Shouldn't have done that. I would have paid attention. It's there so we go, wow, Jesus is making a big deal out of this. What is it that I need to do? And, and, and the simple answer, uh, I think, can be seen in, in Charles Spurgeon, who said, give up the dearest, choicest, choicest, and apparently most needful thing if it leads you into sin, especially the sin of lust. Another author put it uh, something like this, and I didn't put it in my notes, but he said, if, if going to a place causes you to sin, then don't go there. If seeing a person causes you to lust, then don't see them. And, and if, if some activity causes you to sin, then don't do it anymore. <laughs> That's what Jesus is getting at. But he's not getting at it in a, this is a pretty good idea way. He's being very, very serious. I mean, the easiest examples, right? We know this because lust is so driven by our media today. Our computers, our TVs, our phones, they are, uh, are the number one source of lust. Hard data can, can back that up, right? And, and so what Jesus is saying is, if your computer is a part of the lust in your life, then get rid of a computer. And you say, wait a what? I can't function without a computer. Do you know what year it is? Like, I can't live like that. And that's the point. Jesus is like, if your eye, which I think we can agree, I won't make you raise your hands, but like our eyes are more important than our computers. You might not agree if I said more important than our phones, but like at least more important than our computers. If your computer causes you, is a part of lust, get rid of it, sell it, be done with it. If that TV show even the one everybody's talking about that you all like and is really good, like, you know, Game of Thrones. Like, even, even then, you have to get rid of it. Hyperbole exists to make a big deal out of things, not to cause us to ignore them. And Jesus is saying, even if it costs you a lot, if something is making you, moving you towards, causing you to sin, you got to get rid of it. You got to get rid of it altogether. Why? Because when you commit those sins, you are devaluing a human that God has created with incredible, inherent value and worth. And you have to ask the question, is your computer more important than that girl? The one that you should see only as a sister in Christ or a sinner in need of a savior? 
is that show more important than that actress? Who at some point, frankly, didn't see the value in herself and decided that she could feel more value by getting naked on TV. I think you know the answer, but in case you don't, there's this other warning. And again, I believe this is uh, a part of the hyperbole, but it cannot be ignored. I mean, it's better for you know, to you to lose one part of your body. It's better for you to lose your computer than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. What does Jesus mean here? So I googled that question. <laughs> what does Jesus mean here? And the first thing I found is uh, something from somebody that I always want to return to, John Piper, who's a semi-famous pastor that's older now. And uh, I, I want to set this up by saying John Piper is is a, a Calvinist, which is a line of uh, theological reasoning uh, that that has some very stern beliefs about how we get saved. And, you know, two of those beliefs are, are worth noting before I read this to you to see, to, because it will show how seriously he's, he's taken this. And the first is that he, he would tell you that people are saved only as God unconditionally elects them. That is, God has either chosen to save you or not. I, I think that's the most basic way of saying it. He might not like me saying it that way, but that's the most basic way. And the other one is, if you are a Christian, you will always be a Christian. There will be no backsliding. There will be no, you know, like I, I prayed once and I, you know, when I was a kid at VBS or whatever, and, 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 I'm, and then I lost that. I gave that up. And so with that in mind, I want to read you this quote because, because it's easy, again, to ignore the teaching. He says, and this is a long one, so bear with me. When I confronted a man about the adultery he was living in, I tried to understand his situation, and I pled with him to return to his wife. Then I said, you know, Jesus says that if you don't fight this sin with the kind of seriousness that is willing to gouge out your own eye, you will go to hell and suffer there forever. Whoa. As a professing Christian, he looked at me in utter disbelief as though he had never heard anything like this in his life, and said, you mean you think a person can lose his salvation? So I have learned again and again from firsthand experience that there are many professing Christians who have a view of salvation that disconnects it from real life and that nullifies the threats of the Bible and that puts the sinning person who claims to be a Christian beyond the reach of biblical warnings. I believe this view of a Christian life is comforting thousands who are on the broad way that leads to destruction wow i mean first peter 2 11 says dear friends i urge you as foreigners and exiles exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul we have a lot of different viewpoints in this church theologically i don't believe that a person can lose their salvation but I do believe that if sin is not being lessened in your life, if you can look back five years ago and see the same level of sin, and I do believe that if you don't care about the teachings of Jesus, and I do believe that if you're not valuing humanity over your own sinful desires, then you must look in the mirror and ask yourself if you truly are a follower of Jesus. This term Christian gets thrown around a lot, right? Like we call ourselves Christians based on some system of beliefs that we hold to, whether it be lightly uh, or 
tightly. I didn't mean to rhyme that, but lightly or tightly. And, and, and we forget this really, 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 really key component uh, of what the Bible declares about being Christian. And that is that being a Christian is a belief system that causes us not only to declare Jesus as our Savior, but also as our King and Lord who is to be obeyed and followed. Being a Christian is not just believing something. It's believing something and then out of that belief, giving your life to Jesus. We say, I believe you died for my sins and that you got out of the grave and so I will give you my life. And if you look at Jesus and say, yeah, that lust thing seems like a bad thing, but I don't really care, you are not, you are not a follower of Jesus. Now you will sin, you will lust, we will lust, we will be angry, we will do things that Jesus says not to do, but if we have embraced them as okay and we have not done all we can do to remove them from our lives, then we must look in a mirror and say, am I truly a follower of Jesus or just a guy that kind of believes some things? I think that's at the heart of this warning. The warning is not to say, hey, every time you look at that girl as an object, you better question whether you're going to hell. Some in my family grew up in, in church cultures where they felt that. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is if you are embracing consistently sin over the long haul and it's not being lessened in your life and you're not listening and taking seriously the words of Jesus, then you need to ask if you're truly a follower of Jesus. When you sin, don't ask for if you're a follower of Jesus. Ask, if, ask for forgiveness. But when you sin consistently and you're not willing to take care of it, ask, am I really a Christian. Here's, here's what's at the heart of it. I love this. Morgan Durham said, an author said, saying yes to God means saying no to things that offend his holiness. A life that embraces sin is not a life that has embraced Jesus. I would like to repeat that to you because I think we've forgotten that in the American church. A life that embraces sin is not a life that has embraced Jesus. You can sin, still have embraced Jesus, but if you're embracing sin, you're not taking it seriously, you're holding on to it, then you have not embraced Jesus and you have not taken seriously the words of Scripture. And so let's just, let me just summarize Jesus says, look, not having an affair is not good enough. What I want you to avoid is all sexual sins, even the ones of the heart. And what's at the heart of that is looking at people and remembering their value and their worth. Looking at people in only one of two ways. Looking at people as sinners in need of a savior or siblings in Christ. And you must do that if you're following Jesus and you must do it so passionately that you are willing to remove everything and anything from your life that causes you not to look at people in the right, good, healthy way. Because you want to say yes to God and you recognize that it will cause you to say no to things that offend his holiness. You see, this is how I started, but lust... Lust is not just this thing that's kind of, you know, bad. Lust is this thing that tramples on the story of, of God interacting with humans. It tramples on it. And so therefore, we must do whatever we have to do 
to remove it from our lives because Jesus has changed our hearts. Let me pray that will be true of you, Lord Jesus. I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, have people leave and, and, and just forget about this because it's too important. I mean, you brought the word hell up, God. That's, that's a pretty staunch warning considering, Jesus, all that you say about hell. And Lord, I pray that, that, that right now you would change our hearts. That's what's at the heart of this is you changing our hearts. And I pray, God, that, that we would be convicted of how we viewed women as objects or men as objects. I pray, God, that we would be convicted of, of how we've devalued people, even if it's not through lust, even if it's in our anger or in what we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, the way we are not faithful to our promises or anything. God, if we have devalued people that you have given value to, I pray that you would convict our hearts of that. And God, I pray that for anybody here, anybody who will listen online that is that has just embraced sin, I pray that you would challenge them and help them to really consider if they are living for you, if they've really embraced you. I pray, God, that you speak to our hearts in such a a powerful way that that when we leave this place, we we would not want, we would not want to lust. Lord, this is a heavy topic, but I, I, I just pray that, that we all would view it through the lens of your incredible gospel, which is a joyful topic. And I pray, God, that we would leave here changed by you forever. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.